Welcome to Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations with Nina Impala. Do you have questions about death? How about events surrounding death? Or perhaps you have questions that need to be answered after death. On this program, we talk frankly and openly about the subject and invite you to share your comments and experiences as well. Now, here is your host, Nina Impala. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inspiring End of Life Conversations. We have a great show for you today. Uh, Father Nathan is here with me, and I'm really excited about this show. And for those of you that don't know Father Nathan, I'm going to introduce him right now. So, Father Nathan is originally from Groves, Texas. Father Nathan graduated from Trinity University in San Antonio and entered the Dominican Order in 1979. He received his and master's and master's master's in divinity degrees from the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and served in campus ministries in California and Arizona for 27 years. He's been pastoral, pastor director of the Catholic community at Stanford University and also All Saints Catholic Newman Center at Arizona State University. He chaired the executive board of the Catholic Campus Ministry Association. He is the author of Antoto II, The Wizard of Oz as a Spiritual Adventure. And his book that we've been working with and talking about on all of our shows is called Afterlife Interrupted, Helping Stuck Souls Cross Over. In his spare time, he enjoys golf and spending time with friends and cheering on his favorite sports teams, especially Stanford football and the Houston Astros. And he's working on another book, which is very exciting. So, Father Nathan, with all of that, welcome to the show. Good to be back. Good, good. Well, we are going to be talking about the subject of suicide today. You had a dream that came in that is really powerful and quite detailed, and I'm going to let you talk about that. Well, thanks. Um, when I deal with this topic of uh, helping souls cross over, uh, all the ones that I deal with have suffered violent abrupt deaths. Yeah. And when I'm in a group back in the days when we could be safely together in the same room. Yes. Uh, whenever there was time for question and answer, the question of suicide always comes up. And yeah. very often it's not uh, it coming up because of just an idle interest. It's usually because the person's lost a loved one or their friend has or something to right. suicide. So, I thought that in this second book in this series, there needed to be stories that were uh, suicides. And the ones that we'll talk about today were uncommon for me in that they came in the same dream, although they were people who didn't know each other, uh, but they both did take their lives. They were both brought in the same dream on the same night. So I've written up their stories as one section of the upcoming book. Okay. And one thing I'd like, kind of like to you know, during the show today, one of the things that I read in um, your work that you sent me is, and I liked it because the helpers, as we talk about them on the other side, say that they, they died at the, by their own hand. I don't know why, but that just sat better with me than the other terms people have used. You know, they just died by their own hand. Mm-hmm. And it kind of became clearer to me as I read all of um, the stories that you sent me and stuff. And it just has a very much of a, of a softer feel and a, and a feel of no shame, just 
they died at their own hand. So that's just my thought on that. Maybe well, we'll that phrase that. was uh, of the two people we'll be talking about. The first one will be B. Her name is B-E-A, B. Mm-hmm. And when I asked her about, so when you, when you refer to your death, what's the language you use? Yeah. And she said, nobody's ever asked me that. Mm-hmm. I said, well, what do you say? Uh, do you say I committed suicide? And she said, I prefer to say I took matters into my own hands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As and your listeners will learn as we get into her story. Yeah. Uh, she true. had very little agency in her life. Yeah. Other, she was young in the company of older people who bossed her around. And she very rarely was actually the person choosing what was happening next. In her and, life. But she yeah. got into this bind. She felt like uh, she saw a way out and she said, I took matters into my own hands. Yeah. Yeah. And that just felt fair for her to say that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the dream and see what we're, you know, so we can open up into the stories. Yeah. Um, as maybe your listeners know, I always consecrate my sleep. I pray before going into sleep. Uh, that my I kind of try to hand my unconsciousness to the Holy Spirit as though it's an object. Mm-hmm. Here, you take this. I'm not going to be needing it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be unconscious. Would you hold on to my consciousness until I awake? And uh, and then, by the way, would you use it if it's useful to you? Would if there's something that you can do with my unconsciousness? Uh, go ahead. So on this particular night, it was a dream that had sort of three parts. The first one. I was in the heartland of some city in the U.S. Uh, in a neighborhood where all the buildings had been built late in the 19th or in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, I watch a lot of those home repair shows, and it looked like every building I looked at would have been a, a good, <laughs> a good mm-hmm. repair thing. You know, they all had like elegance to them, but they were all decrepit and and empty. Um, and uh, so I, dr- I was driving through that, and then the scene morphed. And I was part of a group of people who were from the big band era. Interesting. Maybe mm-hmm. the late 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and there was a bunch of young women, a young man and one young woman who was the lead singer. Uh, they were uh, in a building that felt a little like a museum. There were a lot of artifacts displayed. And I, I enjoyed museums. I was looking at it. Uh, it was all stuff about show business in the 20s and 30s. Mm. And then I, I looked at an album with press clippings and photos and I was enjoying it. And it was about a young woman in this band, but I turned the next page and there were all these guns on it. Um, It wasn't just pictures of guns. It was guns. Mm. I thought, wow, what's this got? Why am I looking at guns? And then somebody whispered to me uh, that the lead singer had died of a gunshot. And it didn't seem like it was accidental. Um, But then the scene shifted again and there was, Uh, yet another group of people inside a multi-story hotel office building. Um, I felt like I was at least six floors above the ground and we were gathered in front of an elevator. And when it opened, a man got in it by himself. And just as it was closing, I had the urge to get in with him Mm -hmm. uh, just the two of us. And then it fell really fast, like it was malfunctioning and we were falling to our deaths. Before we got to the bottom, uh, it, got stuck and dangled between floors. Okay. And there was no emergency button, no way out. And I woke up. Okay. 
So, so three parts, this yeah. sort of seascape, this big band singer, and this man in an elevator. And you're thinking, so the first, first part of this dream, let's just tell the audience, is the Great Depression. That's- I didn't know it at the time, but I learned it uh, in dialogue with, uh, with these folks that what they were trying to show me was um, uh, an epic that we think back on as being grand, you know, the age of the golden age of yes. and so on and architecture and uh, the roaring 20s and so on, except it was derelict. It was, uh, it was empty and uh, falling apart. What they were trying to show me was they had both experienced the downside of the underbelly of that time and place. Okay. okay. It wasn't all glitter. No. And our, our girl was from the big band area era. Yeah. And so let's talk about her. Well, we met her. She was um, kind of like pulled off the farm at 18. She was the eldest of a whole great big family that they were having trouble feeding. During mm-hmm. the depression. She had a gift for music and someone discovered her uh, and invited her to, you know, audition for uh, to be a band singer. Well, she was 18 years old, a virgin. I'd never lived off the farm. And suddenly she was brought into this world of entertainment and travel. It was the end of vaudeville. So there were still, and radio was just beginning to come in. Yeah. Uh, and so she explained that some voices had been uh, operatic. Had, they'd had trained voices to be able to fill up uh, an arena uh, uh, an, an auditorium with no microphones. Uh-huh. And then when microphones came in, some people's voices didn't translate very well to them. Gotcha. Uh, and that somehow hers did. And uh, they could tell that radio was going to be the next big thing. And so she was, uh, she was sort of a blend. At the beginning, they were doing uh, traveling road shows, kind of like vaudeville. Yeah. Travel by train uh, for a while, uh, within a few hours of her home. And then as they uh, uh, succeeded more, the trips began to be further away. Okay. She so, had first been under the care when she was traveling. Uh, she would be put up at a boarding house where there would be some matronly woman who was a buffer between. Like an know, escort. Yeah. Yeah. Like an un, unmarried young woman uh, in the world. And, uh, you know, somebody, uh, you know, keeping the men away or something. I don't know. Like, it used to be that colleges would have a dorm mother that did something like that in a women's residence hall. So you wouldn't look unescorted. You know, that was a thing. You know, women didn't go anywhere unescorted when she was young. Yes. Um, and so for a time, that was that just the rules. And then over, over time, the men in the band, she was the only female member, yeah. said, you know, you're really, you're holding your career back by always having this like, fifth wheel, this, uh, this grandma or whatever. And, uh, so she just went along and she started staying in the hotels with them, but there was always an agent or somebody else that arranged for the hotel room. And she discovered that hers was not the only key to the room. Yeah. And that the men began letting themselves into her bedroom and she was having to, um, kind of her own coworkers. Repeatedly raped and just having to move on. Yes, and she said that she, it was hard for her to imagine it being rape because she thought of rape as something that happened uh, only with a stranger and only once. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, 
she felt like if she just let them do what they were going to do, it would be over faster. And she yeah. would just try to uh, get it over with and then never mention it. And then in the morning, she'd have to be with these people over breakfast while they talk about today's show. Right. And she'd had like, and, and yeah. So it almost felt like she, she lost her identity, which I think happened to a lot of celebrities even now. You get in and you become the property of whoever's managing you. And they had changed her name. So yeah. in fact, the name that had been her identity was changed the way that so many people were assigned a stage name. Her dad was kind of disappointed in that, took it personally. And she had to tell her family, you're going to read a lot of stuff about me that they, that's completely made up. Don't believe Romances it. And stuff for mag- magazines and stuff. They just created stories about her that were complete fiction. Um, but she said, this is if for me to be in this business. That's just the rules. Yeah. So it was really hard for her. And when she decided to... Um, die by her own hand. She wanted to make it look like an accident because she had gotten pregnant, correct? From one of these yeah, she did. Uh, episodes. She, she used to have to sing these uh, romantic ballads. Right. About falling in love or falling out of love. Or she said late at night, there would be these, I want to go home with you songs. Yes. Period. You know, wish we could spend the night. That sort of thing. She had all these complex romantic ballads that she had to sing. And she thought, I've never even dated. I've never been in love with anybody and I'm pregnant and I don't know by who Wow! I'm going to start showing soon and I need to do something and I can't go home. At least that's what she felt. And uh, the men in this group had guns that were around and she just uh, decided that's my way out. Yeah. He, it sounds to, to me like just from reading everything and kind of the, lack of a better word, the cadence of what I, I, I've been reading with this is that she, um, she, there was something well, about her death that made me feel like she, where am I going with this? Like she, she had no choice. And one of the themes I think with the suicides that we're going to find out when we talk to the, about the other gentleman is if they had taken the time to take a breath, you know, that their family probably would have understood. But Well, I think B would push back about not having a choice. I think she would, she, she pushed back against me a lot while we were talking. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. And she said, she, she asserted herself and said, no, I had choices. Um, um, just weren't good ones. Yeah. Uh, but I had choices and I uh, opted. She, she, um, she wasn't going to go home and bring home yet another mouth to feed during the depression to a family that already had, were struggling. Um, she just, uh, and she thought she didn't take her life by putting a gun to her head mm-hmm. she herself in the torso. Yeah. She because did. she thought that that might look more like an accident. She thought, she thought men cover for themselves and right. they could pick up a story about the gun. They were cleaning the gun when it went off or, Okay. Like that. And, uh, and she didn't want her family to have to grieve her as a suicide. They were going to grieve her anyway. But so, a, a suicidal grief might be even more difficult. And yeah. so she did it kind of as a mercy for her family and made it look ambiguous and not quite blatantly suicidal. Uh, but, and then she said it did turn out that way. The men did create a story uh, where they. I bet uh, they did. Yeah. 
you know, and she said, you know, and this gets a little bit later in, into your work, but she does say this, and I like the way she said it, you know, when you're talking about writing about her in the book, she didn't want to make it of, um, I did not wish to serve as a cautionary tale of why taking matters into one's own hands is a thing somebody shouldn't do. And I don't want any churchy guilt. I don't want any of that attached to my story because clearly I'm here now. So I didn't altogether die. I just died away from what wasn't working for me and lived into something altogether new that suits her better. Wow. Yeah, that's what I mean. She's a young person, but she's pretty well spoken for a very uh, complex set of uh, circumstances and emotions. About how old do you think she was, Father Nathan? She was 18 when she was discovered. Okay. I don't think she was much more into it for more than a year, a year and a half before. Wow. Uh, a, yeah. So one of the things that you described in it is you talked about a diptych, D-I-P-T-Y-C-H. Yes. So it's, before we talk about Bob, let's just tell everybody what that meant. Well, can you, um, most of your listeners have probably seen a diptych, even if they don't know the vocabulary word. Yes. But in a church. Including uh, myself. <laughs> a panel uh-huh. uh, of religious art that has, uh, that's hinged together in the middle. Okay. So two uh, canvases or two panels of wood that are hinged and they could even stand upright. Okay. Uh, and usually they're uh, pointy at the top in that way that a lot of church windows. Oh, yeah. Like stained glass. Yeah. Um, and the, the reason that an artist would create a diptych is because he or she is, has two uh, stories to tell in, in visuals that inform each other. For example, in a diptych, you might have Mary holding the baby Jesus on one side and Joseph on the other. Gotcha. So but it together, a little story. It's a story of the Holy Family, but it's kind of done in two separate chapters that are linked together. Okay. So visually, that's what, what this looked like to me, a diptych. Okay. And some of the work that you do, and I know we've talked about it before on other shows, is when people come in, it's kind of group because there's similarities involved and ways to kind of everybody help each other. Yes, and we've said this already, but I didn't group these together myself. They arrived that way. Yeah, that's so, what's so interesting. Is, yes. a, is the origin of this stuff, and the Holy Spirit chose to group them in this way. Okay. One of them female, one of them male, uh, mm-hmm. both from about the same historical time period, far enough in the past that they could safely tell their stories without feeling like they would open raw wounds of uh, survivors. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. So our other gentleman who calls himself Leaper, but we're going <laughs> to, he also changes that later on in our story. But let's hear his story, Father Nathan. Of the other gentleman. We're going to go keep an, keep an on. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh. Yeah, yeah, now I can. <laughs> I wondered if it was time for a break in the show or do you want to keep Oh, no, going? we're going to keep going today. All right, you got it. Uh, he he um, explained to me that uh, he asked me if, if I was familiar with the Great Depression, the stock market crash, and the so those iconic stories of Wall Street guys jumping out of windows to their death. Okay. I said, sure. I mean, every little documentary you ever see about the crash of 29 
involves uh, those stories. And he said, well, mine wasn't immediately after. He worked in financial services uh, and he, he, lived, he worked in a high-rise building. Um, at, at the time of the crash, he was an investment guy. He, he counseled people about how to handle their monies. And he said, I didn't lose a fortune overnight like some people did, but what I lost was my client base. Mm. And my employers began decreasing my pay. Uh, I, they demanded that I bring in more uh, new clients. People who had any money left, we became, became kind of villains. There was, there was a perception that people that were in financial services had caused the crash. Yes. And then after people lost much of their money, they didn't want to take what they had left and hand it to a, a financial planner. And so he said it got worse and worse. He felt like the wolf was at the door. He said, I felt like I was squeezed by a boa constrictor. Wow. But every day it got worse. My, he had a wife and three young children. Uh, they strategized about how she might work outside the home, but they had three little ones. Yeah. Uh, they tried to have relatives visit and babysit a little bit. Uh, the things that, they, that he thought were little strategies for how to move forward, he didn't see them as working. <laughs> and, uh, and then he said, and then I began to drink, and that made everything worse. Yeah, and he started staying. He didn't want to go home. He was talking about, you know, if I, and that's, you know, where his demise comes when he decides to stay at a hotel and just drink and realize yeah. he doesn't have he, to go he home. And, the building because it was in the dream. Yeah. Uh, the ground floor was retail. And he worked on the second floor. He said the second and third floors were financial services and insurance companies and things. Yes. And then he said the third through the sixth floors was hotel. And on the top, there was a restaurant and bar and kind of dance floor. And he said he hardly ever went up to the top except once in a while to entertain a client over a drink. Wow. But he yep. was having such trouble at home. And he thought as bad as it felt at work, it was even worse at home. And then one day he had the idea that, you know what, there are hotel rooms right above me and you don't have to pay until the morning. And if you don't wake up in the morning, you wouldn't have to pay. Wow. And then he thought, I could go up to that bar. And that's what he did in the end. He went up to the bar and he felt like he wanted to say goodbye to the city and have at least one little bit of human contact with somebody before. Yeah. He so he sat at a bar and chatted up the bartender uh, with the, the bartender asked him if he'd like another round and he said yes and while the guy's uh, back was turned he said I just headed to the elevator and when I got off on the floor where my room was I went straight from the hall to the window and yeah. you know when people I you know I'm sure you in your work as a priest and myself and my work as a grief counselor help people with suicide I always defined it as being in the forest, dark forest, without light, like a flashlight to help you find your way. And then you just get totally lost and you never find your way. And I feel like sometimes when I hear people's stories of suicide that there's, then they, they've passed and then it's like, uh-oh, it worked. You know, and sometimes I feel that that happens to them, you know? Yeah. What, what he talks about, well, there's two things I want to talk about here. The first one, and you and I were talking about a little bit on the break. Um, well, actually not the break, but before we, had, we started the show today. And I think it's really important to mention this. 
So he thinks that he's, you know, when he's talking to you, that he's kind of become a little bit of a, I won't say an expert, but he's something of a student, he says, about this. And he said, sometimes people's people's lives had a lot of misery. Other times there was mental illness involved, chemical imbalance in the body. Other times we hear of heartbreaking grief. Someone had lost a loved one and couldn't bear to go on. And sometimes they might have called it taking matters into their own hands just not being able to bear, you know, what's happening in their life. And then he says the decision to take one's life isn't always exactly a decision. For some, their last moments involved brinkmanship. They don't entirely want to end their life, but they take enough pills that it just might work or put themselves in dangerous situations. And you were talking about in where you live in Tucson, motorcycle accidents, something that could cause their death and kind of push it a little bit. You know, when they feel like yeah. there's no way out. We were talking about that before the show began, but here in Tucson, I would think about once a month, you hear of a motorcycle death where just before the accident, the motorcyclist was weaving in and out of traffic at a high rate of speed. Right. Behaving really dangerously. Mm-hmm. Just makes me wonder if some of those are, uh, you know, that kind of brings. If they're wanting to die. Yeah. And with him, again, and we, I know you, we talked about this a little bit with B. He, he thought later that he should have given his wife a chance to help. Yes. But he didn't. And he said she, she probably would have been able to help him and make him feel a little bit, you know, give him some hope. Yeah. And remember, I never speak publicly about any of these stories without the person's permission. Correct. And I have permission to speak about both of these stories. Um, and each of them said, you can speak about it, but I'm not going to let you talk about my relationships with my family members. That's private. Got it. Okay. So, so it was something that he thought about, you know, and I wonder, just to kind of put people's minds at ease, at ease a little bit, that they, the, the work... If you could explain this to me, because I was trying to explain this to somebody else about the helpers on the other side. Mm-hmm. So if they're working on their stuff, Father Nathan, whether, you know, why they took their life, that they just didn't see any way out, how does that kind of help the people on the other side? Because you've heard when people, you know, commit suicide, you just see it kind of as selfish. And I'm hoping that we're clearing that up a little bit by talking about certain things on the show today. But you, how do they get to help their family members that are left here on earth? Or is that their responsibility? Or is it something that just they have to figure out on their own because they're here and their loved ones are on the other side? Well, remember, I try not to generalize. I try to go from the data that I receive and the conversation okay. I'm in. Uh, and neither of these people um, had done a lot of that work yet. Hmm. And I frequently find that people that have, uh, that I have been asked and my prayer partners have been asked to help. Um, they need to do the thing that we help them do. That is to cross over, to mm-hmm. move from, sometimes it's one wavelength to another. Yes. It's, it has some spatial thing to it. It is a movement from place to place. Okay. Although you don't have to leave behind forever the place you're moving from. Okay. That makes sense. Once you graduate to second grade, you, you can still go back to the first grade classroom. Okay. 
or you still know the things that you learned there and mm-hmm. move freely and in, in terms of thoughts and ideas and teachings, you're just advancing. So with this kind of com- comes in on our last show that we talked about of what's in your mind when you die, what's in your imagination when you die just kind of goes with you. And not just at the moment of death, but whatever uh, ideas, what's in your imagination subsequently. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then they just pretty much, you know, from what I read with, with um, Leaper is that he, he's that the help that they get kind of goes, goes along with what they had on earth, but they make it better. Like with B, you know, and we can, let's get into that a little bit, who um, came to help her. This was really interesting to me, the person that came over. Because when I think of B, I think of people like Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland, people that had a real rough start in show business because they got famous really quick. Yes, and sometimes at an early age, in the, in the case of Judy Garland, she was hired by MGM when she was 12. Exactly. And I don't know if uh, I can just tell the audience, you know, that movie, Judy, I recently watched it and it reminded me so much of B because she was taking diet pills and then counteracting with sleep pills at a very young age. So that, that was then the trajectory of her life, that pills will get you through whatever you need to get through. And she died of a barbiturate overdose. Yeah. And in Judy Garland's uh, case, they thought that the uh, amphetamines, the pep pills that made you work, that enabled you to work 18-hour days, yeah, they were new. They were a wonder drug. Uh, and why wouldn't you want that? You know, right. Um, they didn't know how addictive. And um, I've heard um, um, Judy's daughter, Lorna, mm-hmm. uh, was here in Tucson a year or two ago. And I heard her speak, and that's the way she spoke of her mother's death. She said she wasn't so much angry at MGM that of, they, of their malpractice. She said they were just doing what people did at the time, and they thought that taking um, barbiturates and amphetamines was just uh, modern medicine. And normal. It was well, normal. it wasn't normal for commonplace people, but they weren't common people. Yeah, <laughs> were, it was for celebrities. Women. They were celebrities working in the industry and that they were, like, cutting edge. They were at the the top of the curve and um, yeah. well anyway it did well really- and then the women got very exposed you know like when we talk about Marilyn Monroe and how she died it was such a mystery type of thing you know so it's just when I was thinking about B and what she the work that she's been doing on the other side and the person that came through to help her is very interesting Tell people who, who came to help her oh, amazing yeah I mean, that part always blows me away. So we could talk about that. Who was the woman that came through and helped me? She said, I'm known for my cackle. Yes, she did. She and, said, and she, I'm Margaret Hamilton. I was the wicked witch. Right. And she was sturdy built. So she wasn't like the glamour girl in the movies. Right. And she explained that uh, she had the kind of uh, physical appearance that made people think she would be a good wicked witch. Yeah, <laughs> right. She did, though. <laughs> she really did. She made a perfect wicked, wicked witch. And she laughed about it, but she said, you know, I was surrounded uh, on the studio lot with all these uh, uh, starlets and all these, you know, little sex bots and 
all that. And she would, you know, she looked like she could be the wicked witch. And she said, it was my looks that kept me from that kind of unwelcome contact that so many of the other women endured. So how do you think then that she, she helped be, how do you feel about that? How did she help her? Well, um, this is not the first time I, I, you know, your listeners might not know, but my first book was about the wizard of Oz. Yes. And I prayed with the actors and everybody involved in the making of the film and the writing of the book for, geez, decades. Mm-hmm. This is not the first time that I've seen Margaret Hamilton show up to help somebody. She's a doll. She's a really sweet person. I know, because you said there, you, you said, uh, what was it? It was so funny. Um, I was cracking up when I read it because you, she said something like, uh, you'll love it when you get here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're like, already oh, friends. Yeah. I have a lot of friends in high places. and yes, she's, You do. Uh, and she said, well, you're just going to love it when you get here. And I'm like, okay. Just yeah. Father Nathan. It'll she, be says, she says, I have it circled. Well, you're going to love it when you get here because remote in time is what this place is all about. No need to wear a watch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's so great. She's got a great sense of humor and, and she's very practical. But she's yeah. also compassionate and she knows that uh, the abuse of women in the entertainment industry hasn't stopped. Yeah. And, and she just, took her. Go ahead. An eye on it. And she tries to help where she can. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. She told her, um, I remember in her healing process, they went shopping when she came to get her. And it's like, nobody's going to bother you here. Everybody looks good in clothes. Everybody looks good here. There's no, there's no like competition. It's and just, nobody's allowed to hit on anybody else. Yes, that was the big one. The thing she was concerned about is if yeah. I get dressed up, am I going to just invite negative male attention? And she said, no, that doesn't happen here. No, and herein lies what we, we were talking about is that that piece of her from living her whole life being hit on all the time, was it went with her to the other side. Sure, and she's that, the same person. Yeah. So I thought that was really beautiful the way that took place. And it always amazes me, the people that come through to help, you know, how perfect they are. Well, and the thing that they, that Margaret decided that they would do would they would, would go on a girl date. And yeah. She described a girl date. And um, I can remember as a little boy back in the 60s, some of that stuff was just ending. That epic where women wore gloves and hats. Yes. In the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah, it's true. The tail end of that. I remember going with my mom on a bus to New Orleans where she grew up. And there was the big department store there was called Maison Blanche. Mm-hmm. It was the place where, where my mother wouldn't have bought much clothing. She would have gone there to look. And yeah, not buy. And then go to some discount place. But, uh, but she, I remember she took me there to have lunch with her and my Aunt Luella. And it was, it was my great Aunt Luella. So another oh. generation up the line. And they had this kind of on the fourth floor, there was a tea room. Mm-hmm. just for women and just for lunch. Oh my gosh. How high end girly lunch date. I remember being yes. taken on this thing when I was about 10. <laughs> was a little, little bit of a time capsule that I, I, but I remember it. And it was like that. They, she, she said every day, every town had at least one or two posh shops. Okay. And she said, I could never have afforded to buy anything there, but she's taking me to some posh place and we're going to get all dressed up and we're mm-hmm. going to go on a girl date. I just think that's so neat. You know, they just, it's just so neat the way it's all perfect, you know, to help them. Yeah. And it's, and it's temporary. It's just a way to get from here to there. 
Let's yeah, do true. something. Let's, let's, uh, we need to move. While we're moving, we need to move to something. How about we go on a, <laughs> why don't we go window shop and then we'll have lunch? Yeah, move that to is- something. Yeah. So that's just getting them in forward motion after what's happened to them. Yeah, and having, in her case, being able to look good without be, that being hit on. Yeah. And not being afraid to look so crazy. You know, getting dressed and nothing, knowing that you look good. Yeah. That would make anybody feel good. Well, I think we're kind of at a good place for a break because yeah. I want to talk about um, Bob when we get back and who brought him across and a couple other things with him. So let's go to break now and uh, we'll be right back to talk about Leaper and who helped him cross. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Nina offers an alternative to traditional counseling. Sessions are not just 50 minutes, but a full hour. When you go in for a regular counseling session, many times you don't remember everything. Nina's difference is a summary email after each session and or a follow-up phone call if needed up to two weeks after. Nina also provides hospital visit consultations as necessary. Sessions with Nina and Paula are $250. And if you book a three-session package, you will get a $100 discount. Let's get you feeling peaceful and happy again. Losing someone we love is one of the most challenging, fearful, and heart-rending experiences we are ever likely to face. In her book, Dearly Departed, Nina Impala shares stories of her experiences as a hospice volunteer for more than 12 years and how those experiences prepared her for the final days of her own parents. Nina emphasizes the importance of being a good listener and living a good life. Dearly Departed by Nina Impala is available in paperback or Kindle edition through Amazon.com or your favorite book retailer. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. If you have a question for Nina Impala or her guest today, call into our program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to tutoringforthespirit at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Okay, and we're back. We, um... Father Nathan and I want to go over one other thing, and I think it's really important. I'm really glad he brought it up because I think it's important, and I'm going to read it, Father Nathan, and then you can comment on it for us. So B says, um, I'm going to say it here. Okay, so they've moved me past the big onerous sin part of it, the notion that how dare you take the life God gave you and kill it. 
and that God will be this angry power who would punish you for the grand evil that you did. I had some of that, which made me want to be in, in the dark, although I never gave into that entirely. It was just circumstances were beyond anything I knew what to do with. I didn't see a way out. I took a way out that I did see. Some of them began to be compassionate about that, and they said this. Well, we haven't been where you were. It's not our place to say what you ought or ought not have done, only that you're here now, we're here now. But this is not a place for you to stay. It's a place where you can go be for a time while you get your strength about you, while you get your bearings, and while you learn about your freedom, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted your hearers to, uh, uh, to know that part. When we were writing about suicide, we certainly didn't want to encourage anybody uh, to take that path, you know? Yes. To describe something about the afterlife that's so uh, peaceful and everything that, that to make that more attractive at all. But we also wanted to uh, highlight the fact that a lot of people feel like suicide is this mortal sin and yeah. uh, this horror and the person that they loved who's now taken their own life is now going to be suffering even worse than they already had been. Yes. Thank you. Tribute to that. No. Um, And so I really liked the way her helpers said, um, you have it in front of you again. Well, we weren't where you were. Well, we, our place is, well, we haven't seen where you were. It's not our place to say what you ought or ought not have done, only that you're here now and we're here now. So it's bringing it to the present moment. Yes, exactly. How many, I I, I might just like to frame that phrase, you know? It's so easy to have to form opinions of what other people ought or ought not have done. Right. And it's your life. I mean, God gave us this gift of life and we do what we do with it. I just wasn't where you were, but I'm but. I'm here now and you're here now. Yes. Let's let's make the best of where we are now and let's go forward. And that goes back to, you know, moving forward to the next place, whatever yeah. that is that we just a, a lot of counseling is like that. A lot of counseling is people stay unhappy in their present life because of something that happened earlier. Yeah. That part of it and counseling is saying, well, except how much more of your time do you want to spend rehashing? something in the past that was unpleasant the first time you experienced it. Do you really want to re-experience it? Yeah. Or could we choose a different path? And go to that dark place like she talks about, you know. So our our boy, uh, Leaper. That's what he called himself for most of the story. He didn't yes. use a name. And even in the end, the name that uh, is a nickname. So we don't really know his, his no, actual name. We don't. He just didn't want, to, want us to know it. Okay. So, and he he does change it around a little bit, but for sake of time, I want you to talk to us about him and who came to him to help him <laughs> get to the next place, which is it's fascinating. Crazy. It's, it's crazy. fascinating. I love the kingdom of God because it's just so fun. Yeah, it is. It's so unexpected and so compassionate. Uh, he 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 explained his whole story and everything and. And that in the end, the thing that, that caused him to want to jump out a window was his financial straits. And the person who showed up for him uh, at the moment of his own death had been the richest man in the world. 
Yeah, at his time. You know, I just, it's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. A a man who had, and in his own day, in April of 1912, the richest man in the world who bought a ticket on the Titanic because he could go first class and afford it, was John Jacob Astor. Yep. And in any retelling of that story, including the, you know, the grand movie in, what was it, 1997, maybe? Yeah. Uh, uh, you, nobody tells the story of the sinking of the Titanic without mentioning John Jacob Astor because yeah. he was the richest man in the world. And, oh, my God, he drowned. Yeah. Uh, and I've, he showed up for a lot of drowning victims. And, That's and not- that helped because he's the world's most famous drowner. Yeah, he is. He uh, is. He shows up for drowning victims and says, hey, come over here, um, fellow drowner. <laughs> I'm going to help you out. Yeah, let's get let's get out of here. And in this case, he said something to uh, Leaper, who later calls himself Bob. Uh, he said, well, you know, had I lived a couple of decades more, he died in 1912, said if I'd lived longer, I might have lived to see my fortune dry up overnight. And I might have found that window ledge just as attractive as you did. Right. Yes. I think that that was, when I read that, I, I, I giggled about it because I thought to myself, wow, he was the richest man in the world if he had lost his entire fortune. He said, I might have found that window ledge as attractive as you did. Yeah. So it was yeah. just a really sweet way to talk to a guy making a little bit light of it and, um, Trying to help him get to that next place. Yeah, trying to help him say, okay, uh, well, and again, that same thing. Well, uh, here we are. What can we do to help each other? Right. And, uh, so anyway, John Jacob ended up um, helping uh, Leaper move along, but only, uh, but not before he allowed us to give him a name. And yep, which he decided on was Bob. Bob. Yes. Because he, want, he wanted, he said, you know, I died falling. And he said the law of gravity worked just as it was designed. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> he left out a window and he said the law of, law of gravity worked just the way it was designed. Uh, and he said, but now I'm not heavy and I'm getting lighter. And it was my sister, Catherine, who was helping in that. Uh, she was the prayer partner that day. And she said, well, let's think of a name. Why don't we give you a nickname, something that's not Leaper. You know, because you're more than that. You're more than somebody who jumped out a window. Why don't we give you a nickname? Uh, and he said, well, it needs to be something that involves feeling lighter or taking flight. Yeah. And we suggested, well, maybe Orville or Wilbur. They took flight. He didn't like that. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, somehow uh, I think my, my sister came up with the idea of a cork that bobs on the water. Yeah. When you're And fishing. that's how they came up with it. Yeah, and so it it it's light, and it and it uh, it it sort of floats. He 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 uh, he knew that my sister he was inside me, and he knew that my sister was a scuba diver. And he said, "When you dive, don't you have to put weight around you?" And she yeah. said, "That's because you're too naturally buoyant. You have to if you really want to go to great depths, you have to have weight." Yeah, a weight belt. And yeah. he said, "Well, now I feel like the opposite. I feel like I'm buoyant." And and she said, well, how about Bob? What if you were like a Bob? And he said, yeah, you have to put, don't you have to put a weight underneath the Bob just to keep the hook from floating to the surface? Yeah. So it was, it was good. So he liked the name Bob. So he's yeah. kind of bobbing like a cork now. 
I love what he said in our story about he got you got you getting in the elevator with him was a kindness. Yeah, isn't that sweet? That was so sweet. And you know, and the point that I really kind of want to nail down in the show is that I think it's really important for people to remember that therapists doc people that are like doctors and nurses and stuff are the people that are greeting some of these people that come to them feeling so in the beginning feeling like they're in such a dark place and getting back to I I keep going back to this point that I think is so good is when whatever life that they've lived that kind of goes over with them and he says when he took his life he said it did not go black my troubles weren't over I was a mess and I slept I died a mess I made a mess at dying but I wasn't shamed I was to attend what I had control over. I thought that was so beautiful. Yes. Because it's, it, it seems to me that when people have com- commit suicide, from what I've talked to you with, when they get to the other side, they're like greeted by these helpers. Say, yes. okay. And then we go and we, f- we figure it out, but you're not shamed. That, that to me just, you know, It just blows my mind because people on this side that might be angry that somebody killed themselves have all those earthly emotions that want to make it hard on them or they need to be punished. They've screwed up the whole family, things like that, that are very emotional, egoic that on this side. But when they're in the afterlife, that all goes away. It's about love. It's about unconditional love. And it's about helping somebody get better. And think about shame as a positive. When you do feel ashamed of a thing mm-hmm. that you did that was wrong, the positive impact of shame is to get you to refocus, pay attention to the wrong that you did, perhaps make amends, and, okay. and decide never to do it again. Okay. And so that shame is a motivating force to move forward positively. It yeah. can be at least if it's if it's not just a dark eddy, just a circle of shame where mm-hmm. you just circle the bowl. And uh, but shame can have uh, it. It can be a pointer. It can be an indicator that I I I feel ashamed because my conscience is working as it should. Okay. And uh, and I don't need to keep feeling shame once I notice. Well. I- that I, I did a wrong, I did a thing that's regretful, that hurt other people, and I want to move forward. I see. And that, that's where the healing begins then. Yes. Here or hereafter. And they help them figure that out. So he said one of the things that he did figure out, and I thought this was really neat the way he described it, that I think other people could, this is like, it's relatable. I didn't, he says it crept So what happened in his life, he says, it crept in slowly like a rising tide. And it was, it was almost like what he was describing, what he felt that happened is it just slowly kept creeping in, creeping in, creeping in. And then all of a sudden he's like done. Yes. And he told that, that little story that we hear related often about a frog in a pot. Yeah. You you begin heating the water in a pot and the frog won't leave. It'll, it it, it will just let the water go to a boil and die. Yes. Uh, uh, and he, ha- he gave that example also and, and kind of thought that that's sort of what happened to him. Yes. And what the, what the helpers did, which I really loved, 
And I think they kind of did this with B too, because she went and got clothes and she could look pretty without getting hit on. And that was a big part of her life. And for him, it was about finance. So part of that was talking about his assets. What was positive in your life? What was useful? What was helpful? So they just kind of narrowed everything down. He said that he used to treat clients that way when they felt like their financial life. Yes. He would help them look at what they still have, even if they had lost money. Well, here's what you still have. Let's see if we can figure out a way to rearrange what you have uh, to make the best of the circumstance you're now in. Right. And so with, um, with B, she didn't have to worry about being hit on anymore. And with Bob, he didn't have to worry about a collapse. That wasn't going to happen again. Right. There'll be no, he said, I'm no longer in, uh, in a cyclic world where things go up and down. Right. But they have to be reminded of that in the afterlife. You're not going to get hit on here. You're not going to have to worry about the collapse. Yeah. You're not going to have to watch the, uh, the stock market. Yeah. Worried that it could happen all over again. Yes. Yes. One last thing. And I need to go quickly. Okay. Yes. We do too. Go ahead. Um, is that there was a, a soundtrack to the end of uh, him leaving with John Jacob Astor. Do you remember? Say that first part again. There was a what? A soundtrack. He started hearing music. Oh, yeah. It was putting on the Ritz. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Tails and a high hat and a cane and strutting yeah. out to on the world. <laughs> and so he did. Yeah. John Jacob Astor added that one little twist. Hey, let's get out of here, but let's go strut down the avenue. I thought that was really great. I thought it was really great. So... Thank you for being with us, Father Nathan. I really appreciate it. Always a joy. Really great. And we'll you'll be back here next uh, Wednesday. I'm not next Wednesday, the first Wednesday in November. So I hope everybody tunes in to him. So thanks for being on and I'll let you go. Okay. I'm Nathan-Castle.com. Uh, contact me there if you like. Okay. Sounds good. And you guys can always reach out to me and I'll give you all Nathan's information as well. Okay. God bless you. All right. God bless you too. Bye-bye. Bye. So great show today on suicide, and hopefully you were able to get some little gems. I, I wanted to read this one last little thing before we go, and it was from Bob. And he said, I, want, I would say to people, just do your best. And if you find yourself surrendering to hopelessness, speak up, say it out loud to someone. So if anybody's out there and you're struggling, find somebody that will listen because it just lets the steam out and let you know that there's there's always hope. There's always, always hope. Take good care out there. And uh, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. We hope you have found hope in this week's edition of Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. Please join your host, Nina Impala, for another program next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again soon.